0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with NATO Green, who is a union organiser and comedian out of San Francisco. He's appeared on The Last Post, which is my daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension, as well as on The Bugle. And uh, I had a chat with him, a really fascinating chat about uh, union organising, the way in which uh, coronavirus is affecting work culture in America, the downside and the upside of that downside the ways in which this might be a really big opportunity for um, workers to change the dynamic in America and then move on to a few other things including the idea of helplessness this was obviously done over a zoom call uh, NATO being in San Francisco that is not not my preferred way of doing tea with Alice I prefer to be in a room having tea so that I can uh, you know I feel like so much of communication is just in the in the subtle smells coming off you as it were in these very um subtle cues that you miss over video calls and I've been missing as a person and in conversation. I think there's something about sitting down to tea with someone that that means you can open up delicate painful stuff because you're sitting down to tea together. It's like a safety rope over a dangerous chasm. You know, you know in a kind of a metaphysical sense that you're on the same side, that you're allies because you're sitting down and having tea together. It's like there's something, I don't know, I feel not really just, but I do feel like a great faith in the idea of sitting down to tea with somebody and having those kind of long conversations that roam over over territory and that allow you to, as I said, open things up in ways that you might never find the opportunity to do otherwise. So that's me just rambling about tea and what I'm grateful for and what I'm looking forward to as things open up here in New South Wales. I will do more in-person teas with Alice, both for the podcast and for myself. Also, thank you everybody who supports me on Patreon. It is phenomenal and incredible and don't do it if you can't do it. Uh, Don't do it if you don't want to do it. But, uh, it has, it has made a huge difference compared I mean, I feel, I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky. I've been putting a lot of stuff, stuff up there for you and most of it without a paywall. Um, so anyone who's subscribed at any level, um, can get most of the stuff that's on there at the moment because I don't want people to feel pressurized. And again, if there is something that you can't afford that you want of mine, um, that is up there, then let me know. Email me alicerfraser at gmail.com and we can figure something out uh, between us, you know, whatever it happens to be. So thank you uh, for listening. Again, I've I've let myself be lured into rambling because I feel like I haven't talked to you for a while and I miss this and I miss what this means to me. Um, I feel like doing it via Zoom isn't quite the same, as sitting down to tea and i'm lo- very much looking forward to that being the new uh, my back going back to part of my being part of my life being able to go to a tea shop or have someone over and and sit down and have tea and and that's starting to become a possibility again here so nostalgic and weird. Uh, look at Savage. It's on Amazon Prime. If you do not like or support Amazon Prime, that is fine. You can get it for free as part of the Alice Fraser Trilogy um, podcast series. That's for free. Obviously, there's no visuals to that, but you know, split the difference. Uh, it is free. And uh, the last post, my satirical Podcast that is daily and set in an alternate dimension and is absolutely ridiculous and completely shredding my brains. And I'm commissioned to do 366 episodes this year. And if I get to the end of this year, I will either have run out of comedy forever or I will be like so buff in the comedy writing muscles you wouldn't believe it. I'll just be like my 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 joke writing muscles will be Hemsworthian in their magnitude. I'll let you get on with listening to this conversation that I had with NATO Green, and I will see you next week. Talk to you next week. You're having tea with Alice. What are you drinking?
1: Uh, I'm drinking Pikesville Rye whiskey. Uh, rye whiskey, and uh, and it's uh, it's an overproof whiskey, and I have a giant ice cube so that it it dilutes the uh, the the whiskey as it melts very slowly, the big ice cube melts more slowly than the smaller ice cubes. So I get, the, I get a, a better taste experience.
0: So it's sort of the opposite of tea in that way then. How so? Well, tea, the longer you leave it in the glass uh, with the tea, the stronger it gets. Whereas I assume if you think of, you're making a sort of an ice tea, Right. Or a tea out of ice, but where the water is whiskey. Sorry, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this bizarre concept.
1: Uh, once I was, uh, several years ago, uh, like I, I didn't really appreciate this, but until several years ago, I was, vi- I was visiting Edinburgh, not for the, or however you say it, not for the reasons that you tend to go to Edinburgh. Um, and I went by a whiskey shop and they, they showed me this thing of like, they had, they had a cask strength whiskey, um and they said so i tasted it and it tasted okay i guess and then they like had a little like teaspoon of water that they just dropped into it and the flavor completely changed
0: Ah. Uh,
1: and there's some incredible science about the the how the alcohol concentration of spirits and water and how it it can change flavor uh, i've been I've been using quarantine to really f- focus on my drinking uh, <laughs> really just investing and developing in that area i know I noticed that you voted no on my online poll about whether or not I should get a bar bar cart
2: yeah,
0: I feel like a bar cart is a commitment to a lifestyle that involves swinging
1: oh. So you you skip several, uh, several several steps ahead.
0: Yeah, I see I see a bar cart as an omen for the future.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. Bar cart, next stop, key parties.
0: Yep, that's it. Uh-huh. And those things, you know, they're fine. Like, I'm not going to judge you on a moral sense, but they seem to involve a lot of admin.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I can barely handle the one marriage I, that I have.
0: Yeah, like uh, everyone who I know who's a sex nerd just really loves a spreadsheet, you know? You know, sex nerds. Do you know sex nerds, or you're, my internet?
1: Can't
0: okay, no, sorry. You just froze up, and I thought you were like, "Who? What is this sex nerds thing?" Um,
1: right. Uh, so, I was I just on the bar cart when I, when I was thinking about it. it uh, I wasn't thinking about swinging at all. Um, uh, that wasn't in my work plan for my life because I, I should pencil out the pros and cons. Uh, what I was thinking about was like. Movies from the 1940s where people just wore suits all the time and people kept their whiskey in a crystal decanter. And you know, whenever somebody walks in, they get offered a drink, and that seems classy to me somehow.
0: A different avenue down the stylistic choice. I feel like they, yeah, I feel like you have to be very okay. I, I revise my opinion you can get a bar card yeah. if you're very, very clear about your aesthetic direction. <laughs> That's what I reckon, <clears throat> right. So, what have you been wrestling with?
1: Uh, well, so uh, what I've been wrestling with is um, uh, COVID, and the and the and the both the combination of the uh, the 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 health crisis and then the social crisis that's related to the responsive to it, and what it means for for political organizing. Um, my, I don't know how much you know about this, but for more than 20 years my day job has been as a union organizer um and i have this weird hybrid existence where i've been a union organizer and a stand-up comedian for now both for 15 years uh, i've had some stints where i just did comedy but mostly it's, i've been doing both um, and the and so it it feels like we're in a a moment of incredible uh, in moments of incredible disruption mean incredible opportunity and uh, and how to make the most of that opportunity is the is the is what is the question that's keeping me up at night
0: so that's that's really interesting to me I guess there's a few things about that that leap out and I'll start with the more trivial and go to the less trivial um, Union organizing and comedy seem like complete... The antithesis of one another, given that you cannot point to comedians in the same direction with a whip, like there's very few comedy unions in the world, and they tend to happen in very small comedy scenes because comedians are as a general rule almost by nature contrarians
1: uh yeah, although you know there's i like i mean i don't know how much you followed the stuff in the states, but there are a lot of comedians that It's, it is certainly true that there's not a lot of standup comedians who are, there's not a lot in the way of standup comedians unions, you know, famously there was the strike at the comedy store in the seventies in LA. Uh, and there's been a couple of other efforts in the States, but, but, um, uh, there are a lot of comedians, people who were comedians, or in many cases still are who've gone on to be very active in the writer's guild and the screen actors guild, um, in terms of building those unions and are you know incredibly involved and loyal to their unions in in that once they get to sort of that level of the entertainment business um but you know i i had a joke on my first album about uh the joke was uh, i'm a comedian and a union organizer and a father of twins and people say that's a lot uh most of most people have trouble doing one of those things how do you do all three? And my answer is that I do one thing, which is tell people things that they don't want to hear. <laughs> so to me, it's it's like a continuous conversation of like, we're going on strike. The Holocaust is funny. You can't wear all your clothes at the same time. Like that's all, it's all the same to me. <laughs> um.
0: That's a nice way to look at it. I mean, the union, the history of the union movement in America is extremely sort of difficult and fraught and still contended even now when unions are being so kind of damaged. Uh, I I didn't know a lot about it. And then I I read up a bit on mother Jones and that all of that stuff uh, in the U S how do you meet with a lot of pushback or is San Francisco sort of more enlightened?
1: Uh, The, the, there, there is, Resistance, um, you know, I, in my part of the world, I don't run into the, the the well. There's resistance from from workers and resistance from employers, and di- those are different categories of things. Um, you know, the it's sort of a there's like there's a billion dollar, multi billion dollar industry of anti of union busting consultants in the United States. So that if you go into any workplace and you try to form a union, there's a a relatively short list of law firms. And spin doctors that the employer will call to advise them on a playbook of how to keep the union out, and there's a there's sort of a, a script that That's that so they follow. Intense. Yeah, and you know, and part of this part of the script is, you know, there was a there was a time and a place for unions, but not here and not now. Um, I'm not anti-union, but not in this context. This group of workers don't deserve to have a voice. Generally, the biggest obstacle is, you know, there are some cases where there's an ideological resistance where, you know, if you're running into trying to organize in, you know, places where there are uh, people are very politically conservative. Um, In my part of the world, the obstacle is less ideological opposition as uh, a general sense of powerlessness and apathy. Like, how could anything that I do make my life better? This is just what the world is.
0: So to take the next step in what you said earlier, you said you're wrestling with this idea that great difficulty and great disruption provides an enormous amount of opportunity. Where's the struggle in that for you?
1: Um, I, I mean, the most immediate struggle is, is in like what is in what I think of as the, as the tactical toolbox. Um, you know, that normally like some of the, you know, some of the for example, now I'm working with unions of of contingent faculty members at, at some small private colleges, and the colleges are threatening to close and lay everyone off. And so normally uh, what we would do is we would like organize a campus occupation and we would like have a, have people occupy the building in the president's office. And we can't do that right now, because everybody's stuck at home. So it's like, what are the ways that you, that people can, that working people can exert their power and come together collectively to put pressure on their employer uh, to, in order to win a set of demands that are, that also work with the constraints of, uh, you know both the po- the public policy around quarantine and the to to stay at home and then also, like, the, what, f- trying to be responsible about what the healthcare implications are of, like, not wanting to, you know, have 100 people sitting shoulder to shoulder inside of a building, right? Um, yeah, so this is something
0: that's really fascinating to me, watching the protests in America, the anti-coronavirus and anti-lockdown protests, because part of me thinks, part of me sympathizes with people who do not trust the government, particularly when it comes to extreme lifestyle, you know, extreme impingements on your personal liberty. You're not allowed to leave the house, essentially, and, and saying when you are and when you aren't allowed to leave the house and what you need to wear when you leave the house. That, I understand, is kind of, on, in, on as a matter of principle, is a disturbing thing. But equally, this is the kind of threat where I don't feel like protesting in the streets is the correct way to protest or to question or to challenge these these rulings even though I think that you know in this instance I agree with the rulings it seems to be evidence-based but I, I think yeah you have an absolute right to protest when your government tells you what you can and can't do with your body so I'm feeling very conflicted about that because when you see these people in the streets you think what are you doing you know you're, you're endangering people's lives And at the same time, I'm hearing things from my friends in the US saying that when they go for walks with masks on, um, the mask now has become so politicized that people will lunge at them in the street, people who aren't wearing masks that it's become a symbol of political affiliation. You know, you have to go, oh no, 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 this is a camouflage mask. I'm going to shoot up a school. I'm not, I'm not scared of the coronavirus. Like you have to, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to negotiate that particular distance. I don't know how to wrap my head around it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and the, you know, on the other side of it, it's like the, um, so, you know, there's, there's politic there's policy conversations happening at every level of the government about what the, what the government response should be. What steps should they take to mitigate the damage in terms of like rent forgiveness and, you know, paid sick days and all the kinds of things. And normally we would want to, mobilize people to take to the streets to protest for those things. And, um, so this is what I mean about the tactical toolbox, right? There's this, there was this guy once who famously, his name is Gene Sharp cataloged the 198 modes of nonviolent resistance. And most of us who are activists tend to sort of have our like 10 or, you know, 10 or 15 of those 198 that we tend to cluster around. And So, you know, in the, so in the history of protest, like you're, you're familiar with the picket line, Mm -hmm. um, and the origin of the picket line was a workaround, uh, the, as I, I mean, this may be a legend, but the way that I learned it was that, you know, it's when workers first started striking, they would block the factory gates, um, they would set up a blockade and then And then a judge would issue an injunction and send out the police to arrest them for impeding interstate commerce. And so they figured out that if they had everybody walk in a circle in front of the factory gate, they would effectively block the factory gate without actually violating the letter of the law. So the picket line sort of in and of itself was started, was a workaround to, to get through a challenge. And so we're trying to think about that now. And you know, the problem, it's like, we could, I, we could get a bunch of people to go out in the streets, but once you have a lot of people in the streets together, getting, you know, just sort of human nature being what it is, it's hard to maintain two meters distance, um, you know, when you're out with your people. And so, yeah, you, you know, get so
0: basketball players to lie down in between each of Right.
1: You. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I was like, I need an app that will shine a light around me for two meters, you know, circus uh, performers,
0: big hoop skirts,
1: big hoop skirts. Right. Um, yeah, I, you know, maybe if I just wore uh, I, my my other thought is if I just wore like a leather vest with nothing on underneath, <laughs> it would sort of effectively <laughs> create a, a two meter perimeter. Um, so um, with like a like a like some some sort of you know tooth necklace, you know, yeah, what I, I thought
0: mean? we'd agreed that you weren't going down the swingers line,
1: <laughs> right? Um, so c- could I could I uh, could I adopt some more of a swinger aesthetic without actually? Having to sleep with more people, um,
0: yeah, sure. I mean, if you want to, if you want to adopt all of the aesthetic um, affectations of the swinger and not have to deal with all of the um, bodily fluids of strangers,
1: <laughs> right? Uh, um, so the um, you know the the kinds of things people like a lot of people have been organizing car caravans where they'll like get up a bunch of cars to you know, and put signs in the windows and then have car caravans go around protesting about something. People have been doing banner drops and like projecting things on the side of buildings and like social media type campaigns. Um, so there's, there's other things that people have been attempting, um, to put pressure on in this moment, but those things also have a, a ceiling on participation that is, um, is a problem from my perspective. And, you know, we're going to we're going to reach points where, you know, it's like unemployment right now is 15 percent and rising. And every day we're, we're finding out about new businesses that are closing permanently and new entities that aren't going to recover. And, you know, and so there's like the current unemployment rate and then what the halt to economic activity has done to public revenues That is, you know, so the state of California just announced that they're they're facing a $54 billion deficit, which is going to mean layoffs and service cuts and things like that. Um, So, you know, what is, I like, I think we're just fighting a level of denial about whether um, a lot of people hope that things are going to go back to normal somehow. And I don't think that's in the cards. And a lot of people hope that, like, you know, I don't know if you experienced this in the countries that you've lived in, but I think there's a level, just like your normal middle-class person has a level of faith that the system is in good hands.
0: Yeah. that The system is going to work at least for them like, and yeah. it'll continue to roll along and people will just sort of get on with it. This is one of the things though, that I noticed in uh, when I was in the middle East is that people do get on with it in the most extreme circumstances, but getting on with it looks very different as well.
1: Right. I mean, it's, you know, I like I, I've I've I have had the same lessons, but not from the Middle East, but from spending a fair amount of time in Latin America. Um, and I've been in a whole bunch of different countries in Latin America. And, you know, once, you know, once I've spent time sitting in the mountains with people who fought death squads in Guatemala, like the my my expectation that things were going to work out sort of shifted fundamentally.
0: Yeah, and that, that the, the fact is that people people getting on with things is not as positive a thing as you might think it is. If, if everyone's just getting on with it while the world collapses around you, that's not the right scenario. And we, we're in a world now where we're surrounded by superhero movies where you just think, well, some charismatic Ubermensch is going to sweep in and, and clean this problem up for me so long as I just keep going to work and keeping my head down and not drawing attention. All I need is
1: some Hemsworth abs to turn the tide of history.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's that's just not how it works. But unless everybody is so sort of massively discontented as to cause a blockage in the stream of society, and then that's I guess that's the question, is for you, how do you create? I feel like change is either caused by there being a big problem and you being able to provide a solution or there being a big blockage and you being able to take that blockage away and you could create the blockage and then take it away, which I think is what happens with strikes and with picket lines and with protests to a certain extent. You cause the inconvenience to the mainstream running of society and then you offer to take it away in exchange for the thing that you want. Yeah, I mean, I... Sorry, carry on. The,
1: well, the way that I think about strikes is that it's not that we're causing a blockage, but that we, we that we are bringing a pain that exists privately into the public eye. That inevitably, when you know, I've been I've been through twenty or more strikes in my life, and um, you know, sometimes as a worker and mostly as a staff person, and the strikes only happen because what was happening before was. That there was some something intolerable. Um, there, yeah, no, you're you know, right
0: to you're right to correct me there. It's one of those things that I've drawn attention to myself in terms of in in corporate offices. When you draw attention to the fact that someone's sexually harassing you or behaving improperly, you get treated as the problem. When in fact they were the problem, and your reaction is sort of inevitable.
1: I my, my um, I, there I I had one of uh, my grandfather who died before I was born was uh, an early uh, activist for integration in Chicago and across the Midwest, like back in the thirties and forties. And there's a, there's a talk that he gave that came into my possession. Um, You know, I never met him, but I sort of always identified with him and uh, the typical Yiddish formulation is, uh, um, was w- what is it a problem uh, was the way that he said it. What is it a problem um, that he talked? you know, that he talked about traveling across the Midwest of the United States and talking to people about racism. And people would say, we, we, we have no problems with racism here. And he would say, well, but are there any black people here? And they would say, no. And he, in this school system, for example, and he would say, well, what would happen if black people came to the school system? And you know Kate started coming to the school, and they'd be like, "Well, then there would be an outrage." It's just like, "Aha!" You know, <laughs> you don't you don't see what it is until you're you know until you're confronted with it.
0: Yeah, I think that drawing attention to process. But then I guess the question is, when you don't have, and maybe it's a not a very nice thing to say about human nature, but part of activism and group activism is a sense of the group protecting you. In the same way as people feel um, enabled to be more horrible online than they would face to face, I think working from home encourages a scab culture.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's funny because it's like you know the there's there's been this huge contraction of economic activity that it was like we we couldn't organize a general strike at this scale in our wildest dreams. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, what if, you know, Trump said we're reopening the economy and everyone said, no, like, we're just going to keep staying home. Uh, you know, America, um, America would grind, grind to a halt. Like, you know, I think, I mean, this is the, this is the fragility of the system uh, and, you know, and not, not everyone is equally positioned to, uh, to do this, but for example, if the people who work at you know at if if longshoremen and people who work at airports and airlines went on strike at the same time, uh, Trump would have to resign within two weeks. You know what I mean? Like really? Uh, uh, you know, I th- and I think everybody knows that. Like the you know that this is there's this woman Sarah Nelson who's the leader of the flight attendants union, um, and. Uh, a year or so ago, there was this federal government shutdown where they stopped paying the federal government workers and a bunch of federal government function, you know, and there's this sort of brinksmanship over the budget. And, um, and you know, there was a standoff between the in between, in between the republics and the democrats in Congress over the budget. And Sarah Nelson basically said, fuck this. And, you know, flight attendants at two airports stopped working. Uh, and, you know, within three days the budget was settled because wow. those positions are so central to the entire engine of global capitalism that if those people go on strike, then everything stops.
0: It's interesting because I don't think many people would rate flight attendants as having the power to end a a detente in the highest sort of <laughs> house in the land.
1: Right. It, I mean, yeah, uh, That the yeah, that, you know, that uh, a work uh, a workforce of women uh are some of the most powerful people in the world is uh you know that's part of why people don't think of it you know that when people think of the working class they tend to imagine a burly man in a hard hat doing something that involves sweating a lot and that is not you know if that was ever true that's not what the typical trade unionist looks like anymore
0: People the in service tra- jobs are not- right. the
1: typical, The typical trade unionist of the United States now looks like, you know, a, a woman of color in California in a service job, not a burly white guy in Michigan.
0: Do you think that hurts the feelings of the burly white guy in Michigan?
1: You know, uh, burly white guys uh, are very fragile. Uh, <laughs> their feelings get hurt easily. So well, it
0: must be hard not to be the backbone of America anymore.
1: Yeah, you know, it's that you, you uh you have a, a a a shrinking stake in the world and you are hanging on by your fingernails, and all you have to hold on to is that someone else is less than you, and and then and then you you lose even that and you just go to pieces. And no one has taught you how to like have any perspective about your own feelings and that your feelings are just feelings and maybe you need to cry and a hug and not to go shoot up a schoolhouse or whatever.
0: Resilience. Jonathan Haidt has some good books on that, uh, on, on fragility and anti-fragility and all of that. The idea that you need to have a little, to have a little bit of failure uh, in your developing years to help you build a, a stronger selfhood um, thank you so much for talking to me, NATO. We should uh, draw this to a close. Do you have anything to plug? Can people help you or support you, or uh, either in your union work or your comedy work, anything to plug? Uh,
1: sure. So uh, you can follow me, NATO Green, on Twitter, Mr. NATO Green on Instagram. Um, I have two comedy albums out the NATO Green Party and the Whiteness album, available wherever uh, comedy can be streamed or downloaded. I also will, I, I have a political chat. Uh, podcast that I do with my friend Francesca Fiorentini. We did it for a while and it stopped and we are bringing it back as a live stream Sunday nights at six o'clock Pacific time. Um, it's called the Pituation room. Um, <laughs> so, and it tends to be me and Francesca and a smart person who is not a comedian, uh, talking about their thing. So tonight actually, we're talking to a biologist about, uh, virus spread. Um, and uh, uh, if people want to support the labor movement uh, in the United States, I suggest that they figure out how to uh, give money to Jobs with Justice.
0: Jobs with Justice. What's that?
1: Yeah. Uh, Jobs with Justice, it's a national organization. It's a, they, there are chapters all over the country. It's a labor community coalition that brings together uni- unions and community groups to uh, be in solidarity around, uh, uh, around you know, Uh, questions of economic and racial justice. So, um, so for example, in San Francisco, the I I helped build the jobs of justice chapter here in San Francisco and it's You know, for instance, um, has been a space where we can bring together students who are organizing around racial disparities and discipline of students of of black students in the public school system and teachers who are organizing for better working conditions for teachers to have a common agenda around the public school system. Uh, It's been incredibly powerful.
0: That sounds incredibly powerful. I think one of the hardest things, as you said earlier in this conversation, and I'll kind of—I don't know if this is a point to wrap up on or something—that that is just sparked off in my head something for me to think about is—is is this apathy, like this sense that people have that they can't change something, that they can't affect change, or that the, the change that they can affect, because the problems are so large, the change that they can affect is so small. And it reminds me, I had a friend who went and worked in a prison in, I think it was Ethiopia. And she said the prison conditions were dreadful and she worked there for a year. And, you know, she went in and she was talking to the guards very angrily. She said, how can you let them be in these cells, you know, five to a cell with one blanket between them? How, How dare you? And the guard said, well, this is how my family lives. Why should these people in the prison have any better? And over the course of the entire year of work, she changed a few things. One was that women who were doing sewing and were pregnant could sit down in the prison. And one was that people had a better, um, they had a better record of arrival dates so that they could say when people had arrived in the prison so that their sentences wouldn't stretch on indefinitely. That's what she did. Brilliant woman, PhD, very high-class lawyer, a whole year of work. She got some dates written down and some women... Who were able to sit down, and that is a very small change, but it's also an incredible thing.
1: Like. Yeah, I mean the you know what when, when you started talking, what it made me think of is, um, I think most people have an incorrect idea of how hope works, and people are people wait until they sort of sit in their little bubble and wait until the world comes and tells and touches them in a way to be hopeful. And, and then once they feel they, they sort of say, I don't want to participate until I feel hopeful. And in my experience, that's not how hope works. Hope is a muscle. And it's a, it's a practice that you create for yourself and you don't, um, you know, as to get biblical on it, you know, uh, uh, the Red Sea didn't part for Moses, you know, Moses had to step into the Red Sea to make the water park. Um, that like, you know, in my experience, like I tend to actually, I tend to be an optimist because I'm talking, I'm listening to organizers most, most of the time and activists and I see what they're doing. And so, you know, and what I find is that when you decide to, that the hope, you know, that when you decide to participate, you find the hope and not the other way around.
0: Yeah. The more you do, the more you do, the more you realize you can do. Right. The, the idea that I can't do anything is an easy way out of the fact that you can do something. Come on. There's something and, you can do. There's,
1: you could do it. Right. The least you can do is, uh, you know, get the person at the swingers party to register to vote. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's the price of entry. Thank you so much, Nato Green, for talking to me. Um,
2: Loudly rifle doll, a haldi rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin, turns around for to view her frames, crying, Damn you, dawpers, cry up your hands, Loudly rifle doll, a rifle day. And when the ball he looks round the door Tie our ends up door first he will roar Well, tie our ends up We surely do For Elsie Thompson But not for you right rightful doll right rightful day Oh Elsie Thompson Is going away Is it tomorrow Or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Loudy right fall, doll, loudy right fall, day.